Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Somehow, this is the 200th episode of the program. 200! That's almost four years! Instead of just Joe cooling it and running a normal episode this week, we thought we'd share with you some of our favorite parts of some of the over 300 interviews that have been on the program. Winnowing down something like eight or nine days' worth of recordings to nine segments was no easy thing. I mean, I listened to Tom Naskowski talk about how his walks through the Catskills are fuel for his painting more than I want to admit, but didn't include it here. Alex Oath was wonderful talking about how he feels about being most identified with a single artwork, and Kianja Strobert showed me things in Clifford Still I hadn't seen, and Eleanor Anton taught me much when she discussed why so many feminist artists of her generation adopted personae in their work, and I could keep going and going. So, Wilson Butterworth, who edits the program, helped out, and we've selected nine clips from segments with artists. Listening to some of them again for the first time in a year or two or three reminded me how generous artists have been in sharing their lives and work with me and with our audience. I hope you get as much out of this week's show as I did. Before we get to the segments, I want to thank the many thousands of you who listen to the show, who demonstrate that there is strong demand for art media that doesn't revolve around the art market or celebrity or whatever the heck it is that Kanye West does. Thanks also to the art museums that advertise on the show and by so doing enable something that we think is pretty darn unique. I'm also grateful to the many men and women who work at art museums, publishers, and galleries around the country who help bring guests onto our show each week. We're a small show with a very small staff, and we couldn't do this without a lot of help from a lot of people. Finally, if you enjoy the program, please tell a friend about it. If you don't already subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, via RSS, and in almost any other way you might subscribe to a podcast. If you're an iTunes user, please, please give the program a quick rating. That does more than anything else to help people who might not otherwise find the program discover it. Thanks. Wilson Butterworth joins me to introduce the first clip after the break. Having recently completed a major renovation of its Tato Ando design building, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation is now open with three exhibitions, Calder Lightness, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces, and Fred Sandback 64 three-part pieces. On view through September 12th, the exhibitions offer visitors unique opportunities to experience the artist's works. The Pulitzer's expansive, light-filled upper level provides an ambiance that animates Calder's hanging mobiles and offers multiple vantage points from which to view these iconic works. In its first exhibition since 1975, Sandback's 64 three-part pieces makes a U.S. debut in one of the Pulitzer's new galleries, with a different sculpture presented every week. Installed by the artist himself, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces provides a rare opportunity to see a large concentration of these works from 1972. For more details on the exhibitions, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Habsburg Splendor, Masterpieces from Vienna's Imperial Collections, showcasing masterworks assembled over five centuries of empire building by Europe's longest reigning dynasty. The exhibition of some 100 objects from Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum is on a national tour this year and opens June 14th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org Habsburgs for more. And we're back. Wilson Butterworth, it feels very strange to welcome you to a show that you uh, help put out every week, but welcome to the show. Thank you. Can you give people an idea of, of, of what you do on the show, and then we'll get into um, the clips you've selected? Yeah, uh, so mainly every week uh, I kind of go through and uh, clean clean up um, 
the people that we interview gotta clean up their audio and uh, take out the arms and pauses and everything like that and get them get all the audio files uh, ready to be put out. Yeah, and it's pretty fantastic because um, we all end up sounding better than I remembered us sounding <laughs> when um, I taped them. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked you to pick um, a few of the clips for our um, 200th episode and two of the three clips you picked were from the same show. What show was that? Uh, they were from the sounding show at Roma. Uh, That's a show that uh, we did in August 2013. Can you summarize, I guess, if for lack of a better word, kind of how um, that episode worked and sounded? Well, uh, so basically we had uh, four, four sound artists that were on and they kind of talked about their work. And uh, one, one of the benefits about uh, doing a sound show is that Obviously, for podcasts that uh, we're able to play some play some of the work, and that really kind of fits well into helping people understand both the work itself, but then also how uh, artists' ideas are kind of carried out within it. Yeah, I, that was I, I that's one of my favorite shows we've ever done too. I guess another interesting thing about your um, selecting these two artists from the Soundings show is that um, you're an artist. So first, who is the first artist um, you selected from Soundings? And secondly, could you talk a little bit about if or how this show or these artists kind of have informed your own practice? Uh, sure. Well, the first artist I chose was Yana uh, Windring. But I, I chose these artists uh, mainly because, well, they're all sound artists. And lately I've been doing... Uh, quite a bit of sound work, and when I heard that MoMA was going to be presenting their first show focusing on sound work, I got very excited. And I chose these because I'm really hoping that um, uh, this is kind of the beginning of sound sound art and more experiential art being more fu fully incorporated into uh, the art world. So before we listen to that segment from August of 2013 with Yana Windren, you mentioned you're an artist. Where can people see, hear, and find your stuff? Uh, so uh, right now my website is cargocollective.com forward slash Wilson Butterworth. The one thing I'll note before we get into the clip is that since we, we talked with her, she did an installation in the Park Avenue Tunnel in Manhattan in uh, last summer, August, August 2014. Here's Yana Windren. Uh, my name is Yana Windren. My piece for uh, this show is called uh, Ultra Field. The piece consists of um, recordings from underwater insects, from fish and, uh, you know, the smaller creatures uh, underwater. And just above water, you have bats um, echolocating, even for uh, fishing. Some bat species are echolocating for fishing. And I have recorded uh, the ultrasound that they make uh, when echolocating above what we can hear without technology. So um, <laughs> we can slow down the sound uh, and make it audible for us. So the piece will uh, be inside of a specially built room and it will consist from a, or will be played back uh, in an ambisonic system um, programmed by uh, by Tony Mayet, uh, yeah, uh, from sixteen speakers plus subs, so you can go inside uh, the space and spend as long time uh, as long time as you like, and uh, because this piece will be looped and a constant kind of sound field 
from above and just underneath the surface of water. Of course, when I'm out uh, recording, I always bring a camera to also document the sites that I am visiting. And very often I also find interesting uh, images where I am recording sound. And in this particular case, with the small bubbles, uh, you can imagine when they're popping, you get these minute, uh, tiny, tiny sounds that uh, I'm interested in, these sounds that we can't normally hear, but we can amplify them a lot. So I use really, really sensitive hydrophones, so I'm able to hear those very, very small sounds. And uh, this image, I have a good macro lens, because I like to kind of go very close up to things and, um, and enlarge them and see what's in the small, small details. I'm, uh, I'm very much interested in, you know, fish sounds because we know not very much about that fish is making sound. We do know that whales, the larger mammals in the underwater, are making sound. But even though we don't know that much about it, uh, exactly what they're saying and how they do it and everything, though we know far less about fish and crustaceans and how they make sound and how they use sound and the audio escapes underwater, how they orientate themselves within it and how they communicate and actually call for a mate for example that the cods are doing and how they can use even sound as a weapon like snapping shrimps do. Um, I'm interested in this kind of unknown that we haven't found so much out about yet and just to really listen into those small details and uh, closer to shore uh, or also even in fresh water you have sound made by, uh, by even by tiny insects 
that are using a technique called stridulation, where they actually um, rub body parts together, a little bit like um, like the, the grasshoppers and uh, and you know these which lives above water, but also underwater. Uh, you have this kind of technique that the insects are doing. And, and just above the surface, uh, you have also hunters, uh, especially in the dark, then it's um, the bats are hunting even on the surface. You have specific species of bats that are using echolocation to locate um, fish underwater because they get the little waves on the surface. So they can find them and then they dive down and grab the fish. So <clears throat> it's these kind of smaller creatures just above and underneath the surface of this kind of membrane of, of the water uh, surface for this piece I'm interested in. Uh, <clears throat> not necessarily really deep out at sea, but, uh, but more kind of closer to shore this time and, and also in fresh water. And uh, bats specifically because we can't hear them. And I'm interested in this where our senses are... We have limited senses, though our ears are very complex and, uh, you know, very, um, uh, very well. You know, it's fascinating that we could pick out a violin out of an orchestra, for example, how we can, you know, hear details, but we have a limitation in frequency spectre. So we can't hear above 20,000 hertz. I mean, children can hear up to then. As we get older, uh, we can hear lower frequencies and we can't still not hear then we can't hear the the grasshoppers for example uh, and above there uh, the bats are operating so you need to kind of slow down time and play uh, the recording slowly like 10 times slower um, then we can hear it and i'm fascinated by this which we can't pick up when i look at the bats out at night and, you know, when I just put on the, my ultrasound detector, they suddenly way much there and they had lots of them, you know, and it's weird because I can't hear them without this um, ultrasound detector. And, and I like this. I used to study science and um, I were going to become a marine biologist originally, like ages ago. So I studied mathematics, chemistry, biochemistry, uh, these kind of subjects. Fish ecology, actually. So, I mean, even since I was a child, I've been interested in what goes on under the surface, you know, in, in the oceans. So I think that's the kind of lifelong um, interest I've had. Uh, even when I was 12, I wrote this essay about a little fish that was traveling around the planet to find a mate and complaining about the oil spills, you know, and... Um, meeting an eel that uh, were quite desperate because, the, you know, these kind of things, a salmon that couldn't find the way up the river, these kind of issues uh, has always been there in uh, in my um, my interest and, you know, what I have wanted to do. So it's, it's kind of, it's not so strange that I'm doing what I'm doing at the moment somehow, even though I'm not a marine biologist myself, I work with marine biologists now, which is great. Uh, noisiest guys on the planet is um, a cassette release I did some years back and uh, it's an ongoing uh, interest in, I have in what this kind of crackling sound is that you find everywhere 
that there is a lively environment underwater, you hear this crackling sound that you will also actually hear in the in the piece at Murna. And uh, I've been wondering what it is, and I was out recording, and we thought it was snapping shrimp because they make this kind of popping sound when they are they use their claw to make a bubble. They kind of open their claw really fast, so they get this bubble with under pressure. And when this bubble bursts, it uh, makes a pressure wave that stuns the prey of these snapping shrimp. They also call pistol shrimp. They kind of use sound as a weapon, you know, to to get their prey. This is a piece called "The Noisiest Guys on the Planet," which uh, I released uh, on Ash International as cassette only, and. Um, it's a limited edition of 250 copies, but I still think you can get one of the second edition from the Touch Shop. And the website is www.touchshop.org. Where I was recording, um, there couldn't be snapping shrimp because they were too f it's too far north. So um, I kind of I was uh, called up to a shrimp professor in the north of Norway and uh, asked him if you know what could it then be, you know, and he had, didn't have quite an answer to that. And he sent out a question to his shrimp professor colleagues around the planet. And, and people didn't quite know, you know, could it be when the shrimp were eating or yeah, they weren't sure. So it's a kind of ongoing um, 
ongoing investigation into what this crackling sound is. I haven't got a satisfactory answer to that. I think it has different sources. But, uh, but these spe specific um, snapping shrimp that we thought it could be um, are very loud you know, to their size. They're actually the noisiest guys, as far as we know, on the planet. Uh, though, an interesting thing about this was that German journalist uh, called me and... Uh, no, he actually uh, he mailed me a question whether I could confirm that I have said that the snapping shrimp have moved north because of climate change, you know, because of the heating of the water. And I said, well, I never, I never actually said that. But, um, you know, they, I said they weren't there because we were too far north. And apparently they went out and, and spoke to scientists about it and, and they thought, well, no, we don't think so. But somebody had actually gone out and, and checked and found out that these snapping shrimps actually had moved further north. Uh, though I still don't know if it was them, but I was quite happy with this kind of starting off a row of questions because this is sort of, you know, makes it worthwhile uh, to do then, I think. That was Jana Windren. Who's the next artist you chose, Wilson? The next artist I chose was Robert Berry. One of my very favorite shows. One of, one of the challenges in selecting clips for this show, for me anyway, was, I mean, there are a lot of shows that are, that are among um, my very favorite shows, whether it's Doug Wheeler or Robert Adams or Michael Snow or Joanne Callis. But I had a hard time finding, um, you know, a specific five-minute clip that I thought would, would kind of be representative of why I really enjoyed those shows. Um, and Barry was one of those for me, and so I was glad you picked it. What did um, the clip we're going to hear of my conversation with Robert Barry? Could you set it up? What are we What are we going to hear? So basically, in this this clip, he's talking about some of his earlier work, and uh, specifically uh, this transistor piece. That when you kind of enter into the room, it, it's co constantly broadcasting uh, these uh, radio waves out, and as you kind of start to walk through the space, the body begins to interact with radio waves and begins to distort them and and he starts talking about the fact that the handheld radios were were just kind of coming out if you happen to have one and you tuned it to the right frequency that you would be able to pick up uh what this uh the transmitter was was putting out and i think that was a, a really interesting idea of of trying to find the sculpture even though it was kind of in the ether. What's great about this clip for me is that I had never really thought of conceptualism, early conceptualism or middle conceptualism for that matter, as being tied to technology, as being a response to or in direct engagement with kind of a particularly acute technological moment where something new was, was kind of happening. And in listening to Barry talk about this, that kind of clicked into place place for me. Here's Robert Barry. Well, one of the groups of work you've made you've made that places a viewer in a specific space is your carrier wave pieces of the late '60s. So, just to quickly describe those for for listeners who may not know them, the piece is made up literally of, of carrier waves. Think think radio waves in a space, and the idea is in part that viewers distort the waves as they move around the space. And so they're kind of implicitly impacting the work, engaging with it as they are in 
the space? Well, my father was an electrical engineer, and he, he built little radio wave receivers uh, when I was a little kid. He made little, uh, like a little radio station, and my brother would play radio records on them and for our friends who lived in the neighborhood, and they could turn Yeah, your brother ran a low-power radio station. Exactly. They're probably illegal, but it's, I'm talking about the 40s and like that. And so anyway, I just sort of thought about that when I was older and was making art that was sort of interesting to me and, and looking for different kinds of things. And my father would set up after dinner, he would clean off the kitchen table and build little radio sets. And we had the first TV. And this, this is the kind of thing that interested him. And so I asked him if he could build a little radio transmitter for me with a signal on it, which he did. And I remembered when I was a little kid where the World Trade Center used to be. It was actually an area called Radio Row, and there were all of these shops that sold radio tubes and things like that. And it's the first place that I ever went to where I saw television, which was kind of magical, if you think about it, in the late 40s. So this kind of thing always fascinated with me in relation with my father and radio, stuff like that. And so he made these little transmitters. The first ones had a little signal on it. And the idea was that you would set it up in the gallery or whatever and turn it on. And if you had a little portable radio and then and those little hand portable radios were new in those days. And so you could hear this. If you turn to a certain station, you could hear the signal and just move out the further away you went. And eventually the signal would die out. And that would be the end of the piece when you... So that so that the radio wave actually defined the space, the, the size of the sculpture, if you will, that I was trying to develop. And then I realized that the carrier wave, what it does is if you turn to a certain station, say CBS or NBC, when you're close enough to the transmitter, you actually blot out that station. So the second group of radio wave pieces were actually silent. The thing is, you would, if you knew what the signal, uh, what carrier it was on, or what you know, what frequency it was on, if, as you moved out away from the from the gallery or toward the away from the uh, transmitter, you would begin to hear the radio station. It wouldn't be blotted out anymore. So these were the two different types of radio wave pieces, and they were the space was really defined by the strength of the signal itself. That was the idea of it. Also, the fact that if you made an FM, which sort of bounces off the atmosphere and comes back down to Earth, that would be one kind of space that it defined. If you uh, used an AM, it simply shot off into outer space and and theoretically sort of went off into infinity. So you have these different qualities of the radio wave that fascinated me, that were interesting. You could make a piece that literally you could say it was infinite. It just kept growing and growing to infinity. Those were the ideas that really interested me in terms of time and space and things like that. So that's why I used those. Uh, that's why I used the radio wave. So the, the, the piece ends up, more or less, being invisible. Were you interested in but invisibility itself? Invisible but detectable. Right, right. Were were you in, interested in invisibility as a thing, or was it a byproduct? I was interested in in what went on in works of art that necessarily weren't the visual parts of art. In other words, what you thought about, 
when you looked at a work of art? What was going on there? Why was it made? What ideas were inc were included in the work of art? I was very interested in art history. Certain artists in uh, certain artists of the past were very interesting to me. Once again, it was my father who took me to the Metropolitan Museum when I was a little kid and. Uh, he was sort of interested in the knights in armor and things like that, but I sort of slowly became interested in some of the artworks that were hanging there, and I was thinking about them and wondering what they were about and so forth. So it was the ideas incorporated into these works of art that were interesting to me. And the ideas are essentially invisible. I mean, they're not something tangible you can put your hand on. And that's really what I was interested in, what was going on, Underneath the surface, beyond the visual, what were the ideas? What were the artists thinking about when they made these things? Of course, they used the visual to get across their ideas, but it was the, it was the uh, ideas that were interesting to me. That was Robert Barry. Next up, Zoe Strauss. This was taped in early 2012, while Strauss's Under I-95 was on view at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So before you started this project um, in in 2000, 2001, you were certain, to use your own word, that you wanted to have children, and over the course of this project, that changed. Why? I was really, I was very certain that I wanted to have children, and um, as this project moved forward, it was something that I began to find was practically going to be an impossibility if I wanted to continue to work as I did, and I wanted to continue to work as I did. So you picked the art over having a kid? Yep, that's right. So with the project essentially over now, how do you feel about that? Um, I have a mixed feeling about it. I think it might be one of my – I might regret it. It was something that I had never even questioned in terms of my own life. And, you know, here I was in, I would say, in my mid-30s. And it was kind of when I began – it was both when I began to get some critical acclaim. And then in addition, it was kind of when I began to see that the project was a success for me personally, that it was something that I could really do. And I mean, I, I'm thinking on like kind of like I'm thinking on the grand scale, like I'm looking, was really looking to do something I felt strongly would be lasting. And when it seemed like that was happening, I actually started to think there's just no way in hell I'm going to be able to have a child and continue to do this and it's I don't, I don't know I don't know how I feel about it I'm a little bit torn how did your partner Lynn Bloom feel when you made that decision um, Lynn was much more on the fence about having kids than me and I I kind of felt like as it got closer and I had to start thinking about the possibility of what it would mean for us to have a child and the amount of money and the amount of time and the many things that would kind of come into it, I actually think she was a little relieved. I myself am not. I'm, it's something that I am I'm wondering if I might have regret. I, I don't think I do. I generally think that I, I it was a decision that I made that I, I'm confident something good came out of it. The body of work. Yeah, the body of work. But that's really saying a lot in comparison to having a thought of what it means to have a child and kind of letting that go. But I also have to say that in that struggle, I mean, it was probably about a year 
maybe a little bit more where I was really, really kind of debating what it meant. It would, it would have meant ending this work. And I, I didn't want to do it. And if, I think what that means is that if I didn't want to stop this work and I knew that that was going to be something that would happen, it wouldn't, it was not the right time to have, to, to have a child. Sometimes when people think about whether or not they're going to have a kid, they think about their own legacies and leaving something behind after they're gone. And I'm wondering if you thought about whether if you didn't have a kid, the project had reached a point or was reaching a point where it was going to be something substantial that you left behind. I think in many ways that's actually something I I honestly can say I've never really thought of that. I actually always thought – you know, for many years I worked as uh, as a babysitter, and I loved those I loved those boys very very much. And I, I could, you you worked as a babysitter for about the first half of the project. Yeah. Uh, up until about 2005. Yeah, up until about 2005, and those were I was um you know kind of in a way uh, towards the end as the as the boys got older I felt like between between having had that job for about 15 years and then having um, having been in, in the middle of the throes of this project, I felt okay about it. But honestly, I never really thought about the idea of of, have, of leaving something behind, but rather how much I wanted to be present with a child in my life and have and was a very distinct feeling of wanting of the desire to have to have a baby and then to also to to raise a child. That was Zoe Strauss. Our next clip is from my November 2013 conversation with Via Selmans. Selmans was born in Riga, Latvia, but in 1944 she and her family became refugees and Selmans came to the United States in 1948. In 2014, Riga was the European capital of culture and the country celebrated by hosting a Selman's exhibition at the Latvian National Museum of Art. After incorrectly calculating Selman's age, oops, I asked her about the opportunity to exhibit at home. So what does it mean to you that at age 76, 70 years after you had to leave Latvia, that, 75, that you go back? 75, I'm not going to be 76 till the end of next year, for goodness sake. Oh, so, you'll, you'll, so, so it'll be 70, it'll be 69 years since you left. 69 years since you left Latvia. So what what does it mean to you to 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 go back triumphant in this way to to have Oh, I wouldn't say triumphant. I would never say triumphant in terms of my work any time, but no no, I would not say triumphant. I'm a little scared that I will be I don't know, dismissed not not I don't know. I'm a little scared in a way and then in another way you know, it was a place where I was born. I was, you know, it was so in a way it's like kind of dear to me because it was my first language and so forth. But I feel like I'm a citizen of the world and we'll, 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 we'll see. I'm feeling, I don't know what I'm feeling. I guess you would say if you were really a healthy human being, you'd say I'm proud to be asked to show in Latvia and that and they and that they seem to be proud to have someone that is 
from Latvia have any success at all, as much as I have had. But I'm not used to thinking in those terms, you know, so I don't know. I guess all of the above. And we'll see. It'll be interesting, and I just hope that physically we can put up the show so that it looks good, you know, with lights, with the right walls. We'll see if we can make a good show out of it. So it's been so much work, and it is going to be a lot more work, too. And they have been writing essays, and I haven't seen anything yet. So I guess I will in the next couple of months. The show is in the middle of April. I don't know. I'm not much of a of a patriot in any kind of. I just you know I I feel I feel kind of humbled or something. I, I, I'm unsure. It's a very 20th century, it's a very 20th or early 21st century experience to have the opportunity, you know, to, to have had the experience of having to leave, of, of being a refugee, of there being a diaspora of sorts, and then to have the opportunity to go back. Yeah, well, thank you for putting it so clearly. It is, it is true. You might say that it is an opportunity Of course, you know, I have been going back almost every year now for the past 10 years. So I have gotten to know um, my relatives that are still there and the young people that are so bright and and, and full of hope and, and have been really professionally terrific and the old people that are so depressed but still hanging in there, and they're, you know, quite my aunt, who I got to meet, lived to 96 in the little apartment that I remember that I lived in the first five years of my life. So she lived to 96 and died quietly in her bed and did the dishes up to the last day. So... I was happy, really, to see them, and for them to see my art, which is sort of, uh, I don't know, it's so restricted and maybe kind of hermity. I, I really don't know whether, I don't, I don't know what, what will, what, what the reaction will be. I hope we can make a good show. So we'll see. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. One of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth's most significant holdings is its comprehensive collection of works by Robert Motherwell, one of the figureheads of abstract expressionism, the most important movement in the history of American art. A selection from this collection is on view now, featuring work from Motherwell's Open, Drunk with Turpentine, Elegies, and Collage series. For the Modern's exhibition schedule, visit the Modern. 
www.ghostsofthecommonwealth.org. Welcome back. The next clip is from my March 2012 conversation with Mark Bradford. Among other things, we talked about why Bradford had become interested in working with high schools and with high school students on projects that involve art. Bradford explained that his interests stemmed from his own life experience, his rocky relationship with his high school, and with his belief that it's important for high school kids to have a creative outlet, a place they can create in which they feel comfortable, and how Bradford did that for himself when he was in high school. So I just, at 15, hit the, hit the, hit the, hit the club circuit, because that's what you do if you want to be creative. You don't have an outlet, and you're kind of alienated from your peer group. Straight so, clubs? Oh, no. Gay clubs. So you found the gay clubs as a team? Oh, absolutely. And I was like, hell yeah. And so did the school, was that part of your problem with the school? Or the school's problem with you, I guess I should say? Well, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I was just too 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 grow too fat too they were always you're too mature for your age or but here's the funny thing is I guess it is uncomfortable you walk into a club and you see your you see your teacher there oops did that happen to you it did happen to me a high school teacher high school teacher whoops awkward right and he was with a young guy my age that was doubly awkward so how did you uh Navigate that. You know, it's funny that that was a really interesting moment because it we were we were all underage, and I remember this teacher, and this teacher was known for he was the cool teacher, and he would take kids camping, and you know he was cool, and it was I just heard about it, I didn't have time for him, you know, and it's kind of funny to walk into a teen club and see him there with a boy that was that was really layered i didn't really know what to think about that actually i knew but i knew that i felt that something wasn't right on some level there wasn't something right and yeah i wasn't i can still remember i can still remember there was a piece in in the current traveling show where it is I guess I don't know if it's going to be at SF MoMA or not called Pinocchio's on Fire that deals with the space of a club. Is that what that piece comes from? Yep, you're right. Right there, you you Pinocchio was the boy that didn't behave, you know, and he told Fibs so that he could survive. And when you are so young, which people, <clears throat> I think this is why I, be very mindful, I always say, when you cast people out, because they they go somewhere. I mean, when you tell a little 15-year-old, get out, my mother never did that to me, but the community certainly did. But when you tell people to go places, they usually find refuge, but sometimes the places they find refuge aren't the most healthy. Or it's above their, what I call, it's above their pay grade. I mean, I was a kid, really. I was really a kid. And I was navigating in waters that were way above my head. 
way above, but there were no alternatives really at that time. There were, you just go from high school into gay life. There's none of this. They have more stuff now. They have teen this and clubs for that. Yeah, we didn't have that. So you didn't you didn't have it on the DL phase. You were no no no. You just go you just go you just you just step into it. It's not it. But there's no there's no dating phase. Put it that way. <laughs> not in the seventies and eighties. No, no. You just went to nightclubs. There was no internet. There was no chatting to see if you were safe or no. You just went to the the club. That was Mark Bradford. One of my favorite experiences of doing this show was talking with Sheila Hicks in 2014. Just before this clip, Hicks and I were discussing a trip she took to South America early in her career. Among the things she saw there was an Alexander Calder installation in an auditorium, the Aula Magna, at the University of Caracas in Venezuela. I asked her about that, and over the next few minutes, Hicks led me on a remarkable tour through artists, artworks, ideas, and influences. So were you at that point putting together that you you were seeing Calder working with an architect to create something in space and that you had come from, you know, years earlier, Detroit, where you'd seen Rivera create something in space? And were you beginning at that point to put together? I began to, you know, I was a very... It was obvious I was quite comfortable with the idea of being a person walking into a space that was architected and that was including other voices of artists within that architecture. I mean, that seemed to me the way to go. And, of course, when I got to Europe and saw it happening, you know, for many centuries, it seemed like they'd they'd figured it out. We were barely in the United States, you know, figuring it out. You know, I have a section in my notes, you know, in which I want to ask you about painting and and your interest in painters and painting. And what you just said leads me directly to two painters I know interest you, Edward Vuillard and Pierre Bonard. And is that why you gravitated or part of why you gravitated toward toward their work? Because they they both made large... No, no, they're, they're intimists. You know, they're into intimate residential kind of interiors, domestic scenes... But very comfortable, lovely, enticing colors. I mean, that was sort of a spin-off of Albers helping me to become aware of color. Ah, so it wasn't that Vuillard and Bonard both made large panel size painting slash decorations for architected interiors. It was these smaller, so. more intimate things. Oh, I that's think it was just the fact that the you know what the iconography and the scenes and the things that were being depicted, you know the. Bonard's wife in his, in her bathtub over and over again. <laughs> yep, yep. Sometimes dead wife. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was, think of Albert's homage to a square, where it's just one element within another, one color element within another color element within a third. And then think of Bonard's wife sitting in the bathtub, which is one element within another element within the surrounding of that bathroom that he painted. It's a sort of one, two, three exercise, but embedded with and dependent on magical and marvelous color. Well, Bernard in particular, his color in particular is really special. And his, you know, one of the things about Bernard's color for me is that every color is three or four or five colors in each brush stroke. 
you know, whatever he did to make colors, whether it was melting wax in with his oils or whatever, he got a mix of color within a, a small area. And you do that too. Threads. With, with a different medium. You can't help but do that when you use, you know, the scale of threads are the, they're the scale of, are the size of pencil lines. Pencil lines. People who work with pastel or who draw, you know, with colored pencils, it's more or less the same dimension of colors that cross and embed and move in and out and through each other. Are there, so are these ideas or, or things that you notice in, in paintings of, say, Vuillard and Bonards that just kind of seep into your practice? Or have there been specific times in specific artworks you've made that you've tried to migrate something specific, something specific from a painting into into one of your own pieces? I don't think so. I think in going along, I think in when I was in the south of Chile and going through seascape, landscape sort of areas on small ships where there was all kinds of reeds and water plants, Monet, Monet became very important to me. That's and the paint, all the paintings I did at that period were, I think, very, very related to my observations of Monet. And then there was, if I move it into contemporary, at that time, Joan Mitchell was painting. And I thought I have specific memories, too, of the enthusiasm for her way of handling paint. But then painting and pulling, pulling and splashing and applying colors one on top of the other, and next to one another, it just seemed like a logical jump to do it with threads. Sheila Hicks. Two more clips from me before we hear Wilson Butterworth's last selection. This one is from a conversation I had with Richard Serra. This was a memorable program for lots of reasons. For one, it was the first and last time we recorded a program in a hard surface-filled conference room. Second, this segment was taped in March of 2012, and it was only our 18th show. Not only were we figuring out how to do this podcasting thing, but we weren't sure how well we'd be able to attract guests. Once Richard Serra agreed to come on the show and then talked so openly and honestly and smartly about work from the beginning of his career and his most recent work, too, we worried a lot less about getting guests. In this clip, I just asked Sarah about his 2000 sculpture Joe, his first torqued spiral. Joe is in the collection of the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis, which was founded by Emmy Pulitzer, one of Sarah's oldest and dearest friends. The clip includes Emmy Pulitzer herself reading a letter she had received from a man who had participated in a program run by the Pulitzer, a program that I more fully describe in the clip. What you can't see in the audio is that Sarah teared up, even started crying while Emmy Pulitzer read the letter. If you listen closely, you can tell that we paused the recording to allow Sarah to get his voice back. Well, it's interesting. <laughs> Emmy Pulitzer just sent me a letter, and they have a program for prisoners or uh, people who were incarcerated or are no longer incarcerated at the museum. Can I stop you for just a sure. second? I have Emmy reading that. Oh, you do? Yes. Oh, I thought that was the most touching thing I've ever well, heard. Essentially that that actually is... It, that verifies what Varnado is saying. So let me, let me quickly set this up for, for the listener. This is Emily Pulitzer, who, who, of course, commissioned Joe at the Pulitzer Foundation in St. Louis. The Pulitzer has worked for many months with 18 former prisoners and homeless veterans in conjunction with its current exhibition, Staging Reflections of the Buddha, which was featured on, on the podcast a couple weeks ago. 
The result of that program at the, at the Pulitzer has been a series of theatrical vignettes, as a part of which former prisoners and veterans have been trained as actors, and then they lead viewers through the show and other works at the Pulitzer. And so two weeks ago, the Pulitzer held the first performances, and at the end, the audience was encouraged or given the opportunity to ask the actors a question. And an audience member, member asked a question of one of the actors, who was a former prisoner, and asked him about Joe. And we don't have audio of that, but we do have audio of Emily Pulitzer basically reading a transcript, more or less, of, of what that man said. Emily Pulitzer. My favorite piece is Joe. You know, because of my experience in going through Joe, he put, in, he put me in the mind of the life I was going through when I was coming to this day to where I am at now, you know. You see, Joe, Joe wasn't a straight path, and that's just the way my life was. I can start off going in one direction, but the next thing I know, I'm leaning and wondering which direction to go then. As I move along a little further, then I might straighten up like I'm going to a path. Then I might lean again. I keep on going, wondering where is this path leading me till, you know, and then all of a sudden, when I get to the end, it straightens up. So I know there's something out there for me, you know, and I'm just saying I got the feeling that I'm getting closer to it. And since I've been going through this this play, Joe put a lot of, how do I say this? I ain't good at putting words, but Joe has put a lot of influence on me, you know, because I look at it and tell him that it's something beautiful. And that makes me think that there is something out there that is more beautiful for me than this right now. And this really is beautiful. And so that's something else. I think of Joe every night. I think I'm going to figure out my life. Well, you never know who your audience is and how they're going to interpret whatever. But when I heard that, I was completely touched and moved. I mean. You never know what response people are going to have, and it's very um, unpredictable. And I think that if work can communicate uh, potential like that, uh, and he uses the word influence, so be it. I mean, it couldn't be better. Is that? It's not that's not something I strive for, and it's not you know something that I think that is commonplace, but. You never know if you turn someone's head in one direction when they turn it back if they're going to see the world quite the same way. And I think what art does is it fulfills in us something we lack. And it doesn't matter who the artist is. You know, if, if you say Giotto, that's one thing, Cezanne's another, Pollock's another, John's another, Nauman's another. As soon as you say the names, you fill in, in your mind's eye, something that was probably unavailable to you in particular but singular in the external world now that not only makes you see that work differently than anything you've seen before, but it makes you see the world differently and communicate with the world differently. And I think if art has any potential at all, it has that potential of extending us into the world in ways that aren't available to us until someone decodes what's coming in through matter and conforms it in a way that allows us to be in touch with experiences that uh, we would not have had. And this is a humbling example of that. That was Richard Serra. I never met Sarah before taping that show, and I can't tell you how worried I was that he was going to get angry at me for prompting that reaction. 
My last clip is from our 2012 program with Barry McGee. After talking with McGee about his work, I asked him if he'd take a wee detour to talk about his late wife, the artist Margaret Kilgallen. Kilgallen died in 2001, at just 33. She had been diagnosed with breast cancer, but she was pregnant, so she chose to forego chemotherapy so that she might carry her pregnancy to term. She died three weeks after the birth of a daughter. I wasn't sure McGee would be willing to go there. McGee was and is notoriously shy about discussing his work and life, and in asking him to discuss Kilgallen, I knew I was basically asking for a favor. Not long before McGee and I talked, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art acquired one of Kilgallen's masterpieces, an untitled work from 2000 that's full of references to California's art and history. I want to ask, if, if, if it's okay with you, a couple questions about your late wife, Margaret Kilgallen. I guess, first, what was her impact on your work? Is, is she responsible for the introduction of figures in your work? Was it her use of figures that got you interested in using figures, or, or is it something, or, or am I off on that? I think you're, you're on on everything. We, we were just, like, joined at the hip. I feel like we did, and it's at an early influential age, too. We were, you know, like, like mid, mid-20s to mid-30s. We were, like, full-on, like, partners in, in looking, seeing, and doing as much as we could. And that, that, that goes for, like, like in train yards, and she, she was in Brazil with us, with me also. It, yeah, it was all about looking, seeing, and making our own something out of it all. Of course, your your figures and your representation of faces is and was absolutely nothing like hers. So, I, her, you know, yours, you know, are kind of modeled three-dimensional space, and hers are completely flat kind of letterboxed. But I'm guessing it was just the idea of the figure, right? No, I, I to this day still wish mine. I, I, I can't get mine. I, I want that flatness and that graphicness. It's just she had like a natural hand that 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 can, that can convey the the emotion and the the imagery with with line in a way that I, I still can't. I can't. I can't even fathom how how to do it that simply. But yeah, but I think we we did almost everything we did was together. And looking at things together, trains, like old markings on trains, whatnot, we'd go 100% into it. And and signage, she went like way into signage, and before I was even, I mean, even wasn't even looking at those type of things. So it was, yeah, we're, yeah, it was a good time for sure. One project that you that you both took on was a commission in the parking garage for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. I love that project. Yeah, well, I, 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 I had and have a lot of love for that project, too. And Why don't those projects happen anymore? It's so simple. I mean, a parking garage is the ugliest structure you're ever going to have in a museum. You know, it's just, there's, there's no way around it. Uh, yeah, and then why not let artists do something with it? I mean, you, could, you could throw a can of paint against it, and it'll be more interesting. It's, it's, it's that easy, to, but it doesn't happen. So tell me why you liked that project. Tell me what about that you thought was so much fun. That was a dead end. There was there was no there was no way that parking structure was going to get any better. Like I said, it was just there was like abandoned cars in there. It was there was a homeless population that hung out there at night. It was a it was a great. They let us just run wild too. There was no supervision supervision whatsoever, which is which is always a a green light for me. Yeah, the the museum would close and then we would drive there with the Astro van with our stuff and just work through the night and then leave in the morning, and that happened, I guess, over a week or so. The garage was torn down a number of years ago, and the museum decided not to save any of, of your work or, or her work from, from the garage. 
and it's been a number of years now. How does that sit with you? It sits great. I love that. That's, I, they made the smartest decision. I, I, I appreciate museums that stand by. I mean, it was made for something. It was executed on something, and it was it came down with that when it was destroyed. You know, I, I don't see any purpose in. I mean, it, you know what I mean? It, it, that, that, that to me is like the cleanest you could ever have a piece. In, in idea, you know. I mean, I, of course, I'd love to see Margaret's work still sitting there somehow in a. I don't. I don't. I don't even know what form that would be, but it would. It'd be interesting now, but it's. The San Francisco Museum of Modern Art just bought a a big piece of hers. They did. They did. Yeah. Are you still involved in 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 kind of what happens to her stuff? How does that work now? I have my galleries in San Francisco. Ratio Three is is helping with a lot of that right now. So a lot of it's been. I hate to say, like in in a uh, in storage, like in my studio, in less than flattering manner. And it, so it's uh, we've been going through it recently and revisiting it. And it was a time because things were just falling apart and crumbling on the edges. And the museum showed interest in in restoring it and presenting it at that show. So it's a gorgeous piece. It's from 2000. It's it's a, it's a large piece. I don't know. It's probably 25 feet. No, it's a really special piece. It was made in, in Tokyo, in Japan, for this event out there. And it's like, like you said, it's 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 a huge. It's done on a tarp of some sort. Yeah, it looks it looks great wherever it goes. It looks fantastic. And yeah, it, it was just rolled up in my studio before that. Barry McGee. And now back with Wilson Butterworth, who edits the show. The final clip is is whom Wilson? Um, the final clip is Jakob Kierkegaard. And he was also in the Soundings show at MoMA in 2013, right? Mm-hmm. He, he was. And he went to Chernobyl and recorded in four different locations, four different buildings within inside Chernobyl. He, he would do one recording, then he'd play that back into the, into the room and then record that. And he did this up to, I think, 10 times for each room, really building on the ambient noise. And something that I found that was really interesting was that as he kind of layered on the ambient noise and projected that back into the room, kind of folded in these layers of time uh, in history that were kind of uh, contained within that site. And the noise really starts to end up being kind of sonic representation of the radiation in those rooms. Completely great piece. And I was really thrilled that he shared the audio with us for, for use on, on the program. Since since we talked to Jakob, he has uh, fulfilled a commission for the Mori Art Museum in Tokyo. That was last year. And earlier this year, he had um, his first career retrospective at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Roskilde, Denmark, um, which is just outside uh, Copenhagen. Wilson, thanks so much for selecting this. Thank you. And let's hear from Jakob Kierkegaard. My name is Jakob Kierkegaard. Uh, my piece is called Ion. It's a uh, audiovisual work that I created from sound and video recorded in the so-called Zone of Exclusion in Chernobyl, Ukraine.
first, it was pretty difficult to find out how to get access to Chernobyl. But um, once I found out that it was actually uh, within the state of Ukraine, um, they have this organ uh, that takes care of, or they have this organization that takes care of all the visitors, scientists, and who else want to go there. Uh, it was pretty easy to get uh, access. I uh, just had to write down what I wanted to do and then just um, go to uh, Kiev. And then I was picked up there and uh, we drove into the zone. Um, and uh, they have checkpoints and everything, um, even armed checkpoints. Uh, and they check you uh, also when you get out again uh, afterwards and that you haven't brought anything with you. Uh, that can spread the radiation. So uh, I recorded uh, four rooms inside the uh, zone, uh, one church uh, room and uh, a gym, a swimming pool and an auditorium. The way I recorded it was uh, inspired by uh, Alvin Lucia's work, I'm Sitting in a Room, who sat in a room and spoke into a microphone, roughly speaking, and played that recording back into the same space while the microphone was now recording his recording of his voice. And then that recording was played back again in layers, which caused his voice to sort of gradually uh, dissolve into, or his words to dissolve into a, a tone. And uh, I decided to um, let myself inspire by this technique or this idea, but just to... Um, let the room speak, uh, so to speak. And basically, I placed a microphone in these rooms and pressed record and then left the building and let it record alone for 12 minutes. And then I returned and played this recording back into the same space at a very low volume or just sort of trying to find a similar uh, level of ambient sound that were existing in that room. Uh, anyway, and then just add that extra uh, ambient sound layer, the recording I had made, on top of it. And then I recorded again and left the building. And then after that, I returned again and did the same thing. And then I did that up to 10 times, adding um, 12 minutes of ambient sound of the room itself back into itself. And um, the result is that you get sort of the room start to or the sound of the room start to sort of um, yeah create this sort of <laughs> white noise or sort of dense the the ambient sound of the room starts to sort of get denser and out of that appears uh, the resonant frequencies of the room and they are always totally different it's very unique what comes out of each room uh, as each room are very different and have a different um, setting and humidity and interior and material by recording uh, the sound of the room and just uh, layering that multiple times um, you started hearing the frequencies um, the resonance
my fascination was first to record, um, uh, to listen and record rooms that had been used uh, for a purpose and then abandoned. I was interested in, in listening to to that thing that had been something, but now inhabited by something else, uh, what we call silence or absence. Uh, in this case, it was also radiation, which is something uh, that I don't understand at all. Well, by doing this project, I I feel I have gotten a better understanding of uh, radiation, but also a better understanding of what we as human beings perhaps don't understand. And that's the uh, time issues linked to radiation. Because these rooms uh, in Chernobyl are sort of inhabited by this radiation. Of course, the whole area is radi is radiating. Uh, but if you stand in such a room, uh, you, you know it's empty, but it, you also know it's full of something, something that you can't smell uh, or see or feel. You just know it. You just know there is a reason why people aren't there. Uh, just like when you're in the nature there, there is nobody. And I wanted to get um, deeper into that uh, understanding of the time that is linked to radiation as well. I mean, we, we're talking about 70,000 years, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah. I've been trying to imagine, if I yeah to see if I could imagine that time. And uh, I find it very impossible. I mean, can I imagine 4,000 years into the past? Hardly. But 70,000 years into the past, what were we doing back then? And then to imagine that into the future, when I started thinking of this, uh, that was the, when I uh, decided that the title of the piece should be Ion. Uh, and Ion is a uh, third of the three uh, Greek time gods. You have Kronos for chronology, and Kairos for the moment, for the now, and Ion for the transcendental, pure and mystical time, that time that reaches beyond our understanding. You can say infinity, and that's often how it has been translated. But to my research, uh, it actually means just an immense amount of time. And um, that stretches beyond ourselves, our own understanding. And that is, to me, what is Chernobyl. These rooms contain something that is the, the total testament of our time. I mean, 4,000 years ago, they made the pyramids as a testament of their time, but we have been able to create something that reaches 70,000 years into the future. So uh, back to recording uh, these rooms for 12 minutes. Um, since sound and, and time is so linked, uh, I also saw this as a little experiment to uh, look into the future or to understand some of that time. Uh, to say 12 minutes of that time that exists in that room or that activity and then to play that those 12 minutes back while recording again then i had a recording of like two times 12 minutes and then again and again and again and then in the end i could listen to one hour in 12 minutes and what i could hear was something that i would say is always there these frequencies but now i could hear them i could sort of um yeah 
broaden my perception. I think one of the most important uh, surprises to me, or remarkable to me, was uh, not to see a city that is crumbling and the nature taking over. That's very beautiful and picturesque and interesting. But uh, the surprise to me was partly that the whole experience was beautiful uh, to me. I thought it was beautiful to be there, uh, very um, dreamy, a dreamy place. But the most uh, surprising element was uh, to be in the nature, to travel in the nature. Uh, because when we went to the church, um, we had to go to uh, a little village because, you know, it, it's a zone. Uh, it's not just a, a town or a city. It's, it's a whole area with villages towns and a city and you know everything so we had to go for hours through this nature where you had no people at all and it was a beautiful autumn and there were big pine trees dark pine trees and otherwise also yeah a lot of green and no people and that's at this point, something really surprised me and really changed uh, my perception of what I saw because I always see nature as something good, uh, something uh, peaceful, something, you know, uh, just the word nature evokes uh, the idea of something green, something good, something like, oh, you're so natural or we got to get back to nature, or, you know, all these positive uh, connotations we have with with um with the word natural or nature and i was looking at this nature and thinking hey there is no people here for a reason because everything is radiating the trees are radioactive everything is bad for me it's it's like it's it's radiating through me right now i i need to get out of here and by thinking all these thoughts while looking into the trees and listening to the wind uh to this 
just silence in a way. It totally ch- changed my vision. Uh, the trees looked really weird all of a sudden. It, it's like it was really like the natural became unnatural. And then you could say, does the unnatural then become natural? Uh, things really changed. I hadn't expected that to be the the biggest surprise or the biggest uh, shock in a way. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I have never experienced something like this um, before, and I don't know if I'll ever experience it again. You know, Chernobyl is uh, a place we want to uh, leave behind. Uh, it's something we rather n- don't want to think about. It's like, uh, like, oops, you know, let's just uh, seal this place and get, you know, forget that it ever happened and everything was great. Not many people died uh, there and blah, blah. But that place exists right now in this very moment. And you can go there and it's a huge nature area uh, where you just have, it exi- I don't know, it, it just really exists. Uh, but it's the extremely eerie place. Yeah, I think the the the, the main uh, the main uh, sort of surprise was the the change of my vision or my perception of uh, the world, because we walk uh, through the streets or we are in the nature, and or we go to a remote place in the world, um, but it's still it's still the world as we expect it to be. We might get surprised to see something we hadn't thought about or like, oh, that's a beautiful uh, whatever, mountain or something. But here it was really, um, it really made me think that, okay, um, this is, uh, I can't even explain it. It reminds me of that scene in Tarkovsky's uh, Solaris where he, um, where the protagonist is standing by the the house uh, down looking at uh, down into the river or into the little yeah canal and the plants uh how they move uh, inside that uh little river uh, he's on his way up to solaris or uh, to to the spaceship to uh to to look at solaris so he's he's already mentally said goodbye to the earth uh and so, like how i see him and his um, empty gaze this way that he has said goodbye to the earth and sort of mentally uh, changed himself into going to space to leave what we think is natural the way he looks into that river and sees the plants is more or less how I would describe this feeling um, of the nature becoming the unnatural because we are somewhere else That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.